Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. Wow, you guys actually got up this morning, huh? Awesome. I'm old, so I get up early anyway, so (laughs) time doesn't matter to me. So we're in the midst of our transformed uh, series. We are in the second chapter of Paul's final letter, his final recorded words to his beloved son and disciple Timothy. And this passage is really a, a powerful passage about anybody who really wants to have a life that is worthy of honor. He actually talks to Timothy about the fact that every single person is a vessel. And whatever it is that is filling you as a vessel is what will either make your life honorable or dishonorable. Make your life, your life in a way fit for the honor and glory of God or it makes your life unfit for the honor and glory of God. And so Paul is very, very, I would say very blunt in many ways here. And what he's what he shares with Timothy isn't just for Timothy or for pastors. What he shares here is for every single person on the face of this planet. And so we're going to read uh, this passage together. We're going to read verse 15, then we're going to skip uh, down to verse 20, and we'll read this together. I like it when you read out loud with me, so let's read God's Word. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has No need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do as well. So here, these are these last words that Paul is saying. He's days away from his own execution. He's in a a dungeon that has basically a hole above the, 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 in the ceiling or whatever, and that's all he has for light. And he's telling Timothy, here's how you live your life in such a way that your life is honorable. You live your life in such a way that there's actually gold and silver instead of just wood, hay, and stubble. And so when he explains to him, he, he begins to really say to him this, that because you are a vessel, your own capacities, your emotional capacities, your, your capacity for passion or zeal is finite. So if you're wasting your passion 
on the wrong battles, then you will have dishonored even the life that God has given to you. So he's really saying to Timothy, you got to choose your battles well. And he, and he begins, by, he begins by, by giving him a foundation, and it's really a foundation that every one of us needs to have, and, and especially in the days that you and I are facing, we have to have this kind of foundation. And, and the way he explains it is this. He says, live your life in such a way that you are, you are demonstrating that you are approved of God. Now, what he's explaining here, and, and if you've been in church your whole life, you might have heard this somewhat differently. There's, a, there's been a tendency in order to get people to read the Bible or to get them to study the Bible that there's been this tendency of guilting people, of saying the only way that you get God's approval is if you're a, a diligent student of the Word of God. Now, that really is an out-and-out -out lie. You do not get God's approval because you study the Bible. The devil knows the Bible from cover to cover. And he is a master theologian and knows far more of it than you do. And yet will never be approved of God. See, the, the, the word approved here is actually in a past or completed sense. So what he's saying here is because you are approved of God. You see, the only way that you or I or anybody else has God's approval is because we have put our faith in the approved Son of God. And that that approved Son of God has put His righteousness to your account. You see, no amount of studying the Bible is going to give you God's approval. It's only because you have come to know you can't earn God's approval that now you can come to the place that you say, because I am so bankrupt myself and because I am so empty of approval or any way to deserve his approval, therefore I've put my faith in Jesus Christ who is the approved Son of God and who provides for me a righteousness that's apart from the law and apart from my performance. You see, once you have been adopted as a son or a daughter, you have exactly the same approval as Jesus himself has. It's always an issue of faith. It is never an issue of works. But what is he saying here? He's saying, because you are approved, now with all diligence, with all your heart, begin, begin to show that that's what matters to you. Begin to show that that's what's relevant to you. Now, I have met people who say, yeah, I'm approved of God, but live their entire lives for the pleasure and approval of other people, either their boss, their spouse, their, their significant other, their children, whatever it is. Let me tell you something. You will never get the amount of approval that you need from anybody else because no one else can give you unconditional acceptance except God. Everybody else in your life needs the exact same approval and acceptance that you need. And so they're trying to get from you what you're trying to get from them. And by living your life seeking other people's approval, you will not be focused on being that servant of God. You will not focus on being that workman who need not be ashamed. Instead, 
you will be a slave to everybody else's whims and opinions. Look, here, here is a fascinating truth. That when you settle the issue of your identity and you begin to wait heavily, even significantly, you begin to say the center of my life is that I am approved of God, then what happens is because you have received his approval, now you don't demand or need the approval of others. And what will happen, that, and, and this is a strange kind of thing, but when you no longer need other people's approval, you'll actually get more of their approval than when you're demanding their approval. And when you no longer are the person who's trying to, to, to get from everybody else this approval, their, their acceptance, and all these things, but you live centered that you are approved of God, then everybody you meet will begin to see that you're comfortable in your own skin and they'll start giving you approval like you never had before and it will be significantly satisfying. But if you keep looking to draw from their empty wells, you'll neither have approval nor will you have approval to give to them. And so this is, this is not just a spiritual issue, though it is a spiritual issue. It becomes an issue of psychology. It becomes an issue of emotional wholeness because once you get this centered identity, I am who God says I am. I am a child of the Most High God. Nobody can take that away from you. And once you have that, it is an amazing, it is an amazing foundational truth that then allows you to pursue the things that, that really matters. See, in the Bible... The idea of your spirit is the, it's, it's the center of your identity. Your identity comes from your spirit. And if you are spiritually dead in your sins and your trespasses, you have no connection to God or to the life of God. But when you open up your heart and you let Jesus come into your life and be your Savior and your Lord, He sends His spirit to unite with your spirit giving you not only a new identity, but a new status and a new access, but even more than that, a new power source. And so it's interesting in the Old Testament, the idea of spirit was always flowing out of the thing of wind, the wind. And so one of the pictures of the spirit is the wind and the sails. Have you ever heard anybody say when they kind of have been disappointed or things didn't go quite the way they wanted them to go, they said, that took the wind out of my sails. So the idea here of spirit and the idea of identity is it's the wind in your sail. It's the power that motivates you. It's the power that drives you. It's the power that gets you where you need to go. And here's the thing. You cannot overcome your affection for evil without having an overwhelming affection for what is good one affection must overcome the other affections you must have a wind that gets your sail going so that you can overcome all the old habits of the past and so what paul is saying is that if you have been born of the spirit if you have given your life to christ then within you is a motivation, within you is a passion, within you is the very power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's the wind in your sails. And he says, you need to tap into that 
And the way that you tap into that is you begin to put yourself into the Word of God, not as one trying to get God's approval, but as one who already has God's approval. Instead of working for approval, you're working from approval. You have a wind at your back. And so when you go into His Word, you begin to see what really is God and what's not God. And so Timothy is being, he's being uh, challenged and, and exhorted by Paul. He says, you can't be lazy about this. And, and what I want, want to get across to each of you is this. If there's a motivation and a zeal, if there's a wind that could push you into your destiny, into becoming the person that not only God wants you to be, but the person you always wanted to be, why wouldn't you put up your sail and begin to say, here's where I'm going to find life. Here's where I'm going to find my power. Here's where I'm going to find the God who approves of me. And so your eyes begin to be focused on him. Again, you are a finite vessel. You only have so much capacity. And if you're wasting that capacity on things that are not gold and silver, then you're wasting your very life and your energy. And so Paul says, you've got to become a workman who needs not be ashamed. You've got to become somebody who overcomes laziness of the Spirit and begin to put yourself into the Word of God in a way that will really, really make a difference in how you respond and react to life so that what comes out of you when the storms come is the Word of God instead of all your fear, instead of other people's opinions. Instead, you have a truth that transcends even the problems that you're facing. Look, Paul says it this way to Timothy. He says, in order that you're going to be effective as a, as a follower of Christ, then you're going to have to handle the Word of God rightly. Now, I, I want to go over what this phrase means with you. It's, a, it's, a, it's an analogy that Paul's using, and it's an important one, but, but I, I want to set a context for this. I don't, know if, I don't know how many of you, probably all of you, had to study some foreign language in school. You know, you, you either decided you were going to take Spanish, or maybe you took French or something else. I was one of those idiots who took Latin. I haven't found anyone to talk it with lately. You know, they're all dead. But, uh, so I took Latin, then I took about seven years of New Testament Greek, one year of classical Greek. I even uh, translated the Iliad from the original Greek. I took Hebrew so I could translate Old Testament. I took all of these languages, and let me just tell you, I did it enough to pass. I studied in order to pass the test, get, get an A in the class. But if you ask me to speak Latin right now, I can't tell you anything. E pluribus unum or something, you know? I mean, uh, you know, that... I, I didn't do it to master it. I did it to get a grade. And so what I did is I did just enough. I gave myself to it just enough. Well, I didn't take Spanish in school or anything else, but I felt called to uh, be on a church planting team in Mexico City. And we were going to start churches in Mexico City. And so I wanted to learn Spanish because... I couldn't preach or I couldn't share the gospel or I couldn't do counseling or anything else unless I could speak the language. 
And so for a year, I immersed myself in Spanish. And I remember as I was studying, because at first I was sort of studying like I did other languages. But then I realized, I can't, I can't simply study like this. It has to master me, and I have to master it, or I won't understand what people are saying to me, and I won't understand how to communicate with them. And it was frustrating to me to not have words or not to understand what someone was saying. So I began to take a notebook. I, I walked the streets every single day, hearing things and listening and saying, how do you say this? And I just kept asking people all the time, how do you say this? How, how do you pronounce this? How does this go? I had a book called 501 Verbs. I drove Lisa crazy. I memorized every verb in the book, every conjugation, uh, because I want it so badly. To ma I started having dreams in Spanish. I will never be able to spell in English again because Spanish took over. I lost certain vocabulary words that were peripheral words that I knew in English because now my mind was filling up with Spanish. I remember this sense that Spanish was taking over. And at one point, I, I didn't even have to translate. I could just speak Spanish because I, I, I could see it in my head, both English and Spanish at the same time. And I, I remember as that was happening that the Lord was teaching me that the Bible is his language. The Bible is his culture. And, and what he was showing me was that many of us who really need to know the language of God so that we can hear him and we can communicate him and so we can understand his culture and we can understand his heart, all we've done is take Bible like we took a language in high school. We've learned it just enough to pass. We've learned it just, oh, you know, that was very comforting when I went through this, or that was very helpful when I went through that. But we haven't learned to immerse ourselves in the culture and in the context of God's own heart language. So that when things come up that where we need his word, we don't have his word. When things come up, we're still translating from our old sinful language, from this old fallen world, instead of being able to speak heaven when hell comes after us. See, what Paul is saying here is he's saying to Timothy, look, do enough to pass Spanish in high school. Some of you took Spanish in high school and you still can't speak Spanish. Taco, tortilla, you know, burrito. You got it down. You can order at Taco Bell. Excellent. You know, but that's not speaking it. That's not living in it. That's not having it where it's now a part of you. And that's what Paul is saying to Timothy. He's saying this is God's language. Lisa said a few weeks ago that every page of the Bible is God-breathed. In other words, it's his language to you. When you study his word, you are studying his culture. As you allow it to come in and dominate you and immerse yourself in it, you become well-versed and communicative in the language of God. Are you hearing me? So, Paul says, you've got to rightly handle the word of truth. And this is an interesting analogy that he uses here. He says, it's really one word, and it means to cut straight. 
And some people have said, well, probably Paul meant an agricultural image. And, and I don't know if you've ever seen people plowing a field, but when someone plows a field, they don't do a zigzag. When someone plows a field, they set a marker and then they plow a straight line to that marker. Maybe it's a rock, maybe it's a tree, but you see people and what they do is they plow this straight line so that they can plant, so they can multiply their crops. So it could be that he's, he's thinking of an agriculture. Other people think that Paul's thinking of like a stonemason. And so a stonemason would, would lay a, a line that they call a plumb line. And the plumb line would give you a straight line from end to end, and then you lay each stone in that straight line. Because if you don't lay those stones in a straight line, you can't build high, or you can't build with good support or with the ability for the wall to be strong. And so some people say, well, Paul's talking about the Word of God being the plumb line of your life. Others have said, though, and I, I, I tend to think this last one is probably what Paul is mean, meaning because he says, cut straight. And, and, you know, Paul's profession was tent making. So he would take, you know, the, uh, uh, you know uh, fabric and he would cut that fabric into pieces and he had to cut it straight and it had to be so it could match up, so it could be. It could be sewn together so that the, the tent would fit together well. And what he's, I think he's saying here is that as you're studying God's word, you've got to cut it straight. And you've got to see how each passage fits with each other passage. Otherwise, you have an ill-fitting either tent or garment. And I, and I immediately thought about my mom. My mom was not always that concerned how straight she cut her fabrics. She, we, were, uh, we were not a very rich family. We were a rather poor family. And she would make our clothes, which would just be the, to the ghastly to me. To her, it's like, oh, you have something new. And I was like, yeah, but I don't want to wear it, you know, kind of a thing. So one time, I remember I was in sixth grade, and I'd always wanted corduroy pants. I'd never had corduroy pants. And I wanted corduroy pants, and she got this cheap kind of corduroy fabric, and she sewed me some corduroy pants, but she didn't cut it straight. So I don't know, none of you probably ever did this, but in our school we used to play a game called Kill the Man with the Ball. And so it was a football, and you would have one person would have the ball, and the entire school would try to kill him. I mean, that was the whole game. So you got the ball, you ran as fast as you could, 40, 50 people are after you, you know, trying to kill you. And so I had my new corduroy pants, 20 guys jumped me, smashed me into the ground, and as I was going down, I heard my corduroy rip, and so suddenly my pants became a tent, because the seams weren't sewn, sewn very well, because they weren't cut straight. I'll never forget, because when you're in sixth grade and your pants rip, you never forget such a thing, you know? The embarrassment of it, the, the, oh, the hurt of it. I'm still feel, I'm feeling red face right now. <laughs> and, you know, that's what Paul's talking about here. He's saying, you know, if you don't cut it straight, it doesn't fit. And if it doesn't fit, it's not going to work. And he's saying, you can't be lazy about the Word of God. You can't just say, let me touch it every now and then. Let me just give a little bit of my time to it. It's the language of the God who has approved you. 
It's the culture of the God who has welcomed you as a son or a daughter. Without his language, you can't understand him and you can't speak him to others. This is why you want to know what the words mean. This is why you've got to go deeper into it. Think about it. Timothy is being told to study. And he's closer to the culture and the context than you are. We are 2,000 years separated. And yet Paul says to Timothy, work hard at this. Discover the meaning of the words. Cut it straight. Don't make it to where you separate out pieces. Make sure it all fits together. <laughs> you know, there's an old adage that if something you're thinking about from the Bible is new, it's probably not true. Because after 2,000 years, you're not going to discover something no one's ever discovered unless you're a heretic. It's going to be something that's not new. I, I, I love it sometimes when, when, uh, when, when people will say to me, well, it sounds like what you're teaching or preaching is new. And I'm like, it's not. I've stolen it from everybody who came before me. Lisa likes to say it this way. The ingredients of all our teaching comes from all the people who went before us. But the recipe is all ours. Because you see, it all comes from before you, but it all uniquely comes together when you live your life saying, I'm going to learn the language of God. I'm going to live in the culture of heaven. And then what happens is, as things happen to you, what comes out of you is not a translation from this world to the next. It becomes your very language that you speak when the storms begin to pressure you. Otherwise, you're going to have to constantly be going into some kind of study and saying, God, what does this mean? God, can you help me understand this? Because you haven't learned his language so that when the issues come, you don't know how to translate them. Are you tracking with me in this? So Paul actually says to Timothy, he says, if, if you're going to be, if you're really going to be a vessel that God can use, you need to cleanse yourself, he says. And, and this is what the word does. This is what learning what God's language is does in your life. It begins to bring into your life cleansing. See, in verses 20 and 21, Paul says, it's so interesting how he changes a little bit the tone or the voice here. He goes from being specific about Timothy to talking about, he says, now in a great house, which I really think he's talking about the whole world here. He's not just talking about the church or people who are followers of Jesus. I think he's talking about the whole world, the whole creation. And he says, in a great house, there are, not only vessels of gold and silver, but there are also wood and clay vessels. And then he gets really down to, the, to his point. He says, some of the vessels, in other words, some of the people who are vessels are either for honorable use or therefore dishonorable use. And he says, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, then he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. You're not simply learning the language of God for information. You're learning it because you need transformation. 
Because by nature, you see, you are a vessel of dishonor. Therefore, you must decide that the cleansing matters to you so that you can become a vessel of honor. Why have this whole life and the struggles of life and not have in your life that which is beautiful as gold, that which is weighty and worthy as gold, and that which is permanent as gold? Why live your life as something that can be burned up and thrown away? That's what Paul is talking about. He says, all of us have this choice. Now, be careful here. A lot of people read this and go, okay, Lord, cleanse me. And then they'll kind of wait on the Lord for cleansing. But that's not what this text says. This text says, the vessels for honor cleanse themselves. I didn't, I didn't make this up, friends. It says here that you have a response, and therefore you have an ability to decide if you're going to be an honorable vessel or you're going to be a dishonorable one. And the issue is the decision of whether you will cleanse yourself. This is the same as, as where the Scripture says, humble yourself. I see people all the time ask the dumb prayer and say, oh Lord, humble me. Well then, all hell breaks loose in their life. And they're like, that wasn't what I meant, Lord. And, and what they were hoping is He would make it easy for them to deny themselves. He would make it easy for them to renounce their pride and he would make it easy so that it didn't hurt so much. Let me tell you something. Cleansing hurts. Because what you have to cleanse from is something you've been passionate about. Something you've really cared about. Something you thought was your life even. It could be a relationship. It could be, it could be a, 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 an interest. It could be anything you're giving yourself to. And yet you have to cleanse yourself. And... and, and that's the ability we have. We have the ability because He has redeemed us to decide what kind of vessel we're going to be. And, and you don't get to really honestly blame God if you're a vessel of dishonor. If you're a vessel of dishonor, it's because you chose to be one. You have the ability to humble yourself. You have the ability to appropriate the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And Paul basically says to Timothy, there's, there's seven ways that he wanted him to cleanse. Now, here's, here's the thing. If you do what he asks you to do, then he, he will cleanse you. Notice here it says in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, that the if is the requirement. The if, the if here is your ability. It is your response. If you're willing to respond this, and say, this is where I'm failing. This is where I fall short. If you're willing to own your responsibility, then He will take that area of sin and He will cleanse and cut off its influence in your life. But He will not cut off that which you say you value if you guard it in your heart if you say i'm i'm going to keep doing this then he will let you do it until you discover how empty that decision is because i i don't know how to say this as plainly as i would like to but i think you're here this morning particularly thinking about 
the fact that it was Daylight Savings Day and all this stuff, I think you're here this morning at the invitation of the Holy Spirit who's saying, I'm asking you to step into a new season. I'm asking you not to be mixed with honorable and dishonorable. I'm asking you to really, truly decide, I'm going to cleanse myself. And I think you're not here by accident. I think the Lord wants you to, I think the Lord wants to take you into a season where you become a vessel of such wonderful use for him. And that your life is a life of gold and silver instead of wood, hay, and stubble. But in order for that to happen, then you have to begin to align yourself with what the Word says needs to be cleansed. So there's actually seven. I'm going to have to say them quickly. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Either listen to this again, or we put the notes for this online and I would ask this week that you would take these seven and begin to ask the Lord, where do I need to cleanse in these areas? But these are seven areas that Paul asked Timothy to cleanse. The first is this, is he said, flee from youthful passions, or another way of translating it is youthful tendencies or desires. Now, if you're old like me, you don't get to check out right now. You say, oh, well, that, you know, I've fled those youthful tendencies because I'm not youthful anymore. No, the problem is it doesn't matter how old somebody gets, they stay immature emotionally unless they decide to grow up. And so the issue here isn't even sexual lust, although sexual lust can be a manifestation of the passions that Paul is talking about. It's not just sexual lust. He's really talking about anger. He's talking about how a person hasn't learned to manage or check their anger. He's talking about the issue of impatience. He's talking about like impulsivity and impetuosity. He's talking about the tendency to rebel and a tendency toward aggression to get your own will and get your own way. He's, he's talking about a person whose impulses have really turned into uh, uh, an unmanageable kind of life in a way. Um, vanity, self-centeredness, self-will, obstinacy, stubbornness. He's saying... He's saying all of these passions can be strong in any person. But what he's saying about these passions is they make you dishonorable. They make you an unfit vessel for the master's use. Now, I will say this. Because he sort of goes indirect here, he's actually telling Timothy he's seen all these emotions in Timothy. And he's saying, Timothy, if you don't get a, a grip on these, if you don't get cleansed of these, you're not going to be effective. And so if you look at this list, this is a real list that doesn't go away just because you get older. Matter of fact, most of us are very bad self-managers. We, we don't even at times, and this is fascinating how many people don't realize that these things are evident in their lives to others, even when they're not evident to self. There should be such an awareness in you. If you want to be a fit vessel, there should be awareness of you of the areas of your weakness so that you even know these are areas where I have to watch out for because I fall into these areas. Yeah. Are you, are you tracking with me a little on this? See, I don't know why when I was young, I think I avoided this. 
because I wanted to lead and I wanted to minister and I wanted to do all things, but I wanted to keep my own bad self-management. And I have watched over the years, not only has God you know, provoked or put me in positions that revealed my anger, but he also has often revealed my impatience. And, and, and I was angry with him for moving my life so slowly. And now I look back at that list and I look at all the things there that were true of me. And he had to break every one of those things or in truth, there's no way that I could really pastor people. Because you see, everything I do cannot be about me if I'm going to pastor you. It has to be about you. It has to be about God's will in your life. It has to be about where you are. You're, you're not on my agenda. You are my agenda. And so I, I look at this list and I realize that a lot of us who are leaders, a lot of us who want to teach or who want to tell other people what to do, we have all these issues. And Paul is saying when you lead from that kind of emotional lack of self-management, you're actually just hurting people. You're not loving people. And, and, and the, the bigger the assignment, often the, the more veiled he will make in your life until you get this lesson well, until there's a cleansing of all these areas. And so Paul is just laying out for us what has to happen if we want to be vessels who are fit for the honor of what God has for us. And then he says, you take all that energy that was directed towards your anger and all the energy that was directed towards your ambition and all the energy that was directed towards self-will and self-promotion, and you turn that same energy because you only have so much passion and you only have so much energy, and you make it an all-out goal that you will pursue, he says, the righteousness of God. And what will happen, Paul explains to Timothy, is that when you pursue the righteousness of God, in other words, you're, you're looking in the Scriptures and you're seeing what is God and what is not God, and you're ruling out the things in your life that don't align with God, and you're only aligning yourself to God and God's will for your life. What you'll see in your life manifest is peace, is joy, is love. In other words, the, the, C.S. Lewis says this so well. He says, if you pursue happiness, you'll never get it. But if you pursue righteousness, you'll get righteousness and you'll get happiness. But if you just pursue happiness, you'll never get happiness. So that so the, the effect of saying, God, I'm coming after you and aligning my life with you and I'm aligning my life with your righteousness is that everybody around you will start saying, man, something's different about you. I, I just experience a peace when I'm in your presence. Wow, something's so different about you. Where does your joy come from? I see when you're going through hard times, there's a joy in you. I, I, I can't explain the love I feel from you. But you see, as long as you're, you're still not managing those areas and you're pursuing your own lusts, you'll neither have righteousness 
Or will you have love? Or will you have peace? Or will you have joy? You see, and the other thing about what Paul says is he says, Timothy, you can't do this by yourself. He says, you've got to do this along with all who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You've got to be around other people who will love you enough that they will call out the areas that need to be cleansed. And they'll say to you, hey, you're, you're, really, you're really manifesting some impatience here, some anger. One of the most annoying things is to live with someone who loves to do that for you. And uh, my daughter and my, my wife, when I was trying to work through these things, as soon as I would come home from a hard, you know, hard day of counseling people and all the problems that people had, I'd come home and they'd look at me and say, Anna would go, Dad, you're, you're cranky. And, my, and Lisa would go, yeah, you're really irritable. And I'd go, no, I'm not. Which would, I, I'm slow, but I, I did pick that up. You know, I'm like, oh, if I'm yelling at them, then I am irritable. And, and it was so powerful because they didn't say it to criticize me. They didn't say it. They said it because they loved me and because I had let myself, because of the problems of others, I had let myself get stressed out in such a way that I was irritable and I was cranky. And 1 Corinthians 13 is very, very clear on this. It says, love is not irritable. That's a horrible verse of Scripture for those of us who love to be irritable. You know, and yet it says, love is not irritable. What, what he's explaining here is, you can't go work on this all by yourself and get it right. You have to be in relationship. You have to be in community with other people who love you enough to say, hey, what's wrong? Why are you still failing in this area? Can I help you with this? It's interesting. The Bible has two things about healing, particularly of damaged areas in your life. The first was that first John path where if you confess your sins, that's a private confession, you and God. But there are areas of our life that are very stubborn. And so in James 5, it says, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. There is a place where you and I can no longer exist in self-righteousness. And once we share with other people where our failings are, we can no longer say, I'm so proud of my own righteousness. And so it helps us to get deeper and further into single-mindedly pursuing love and faith and peace because we're pursuing his righteousness with all the energy that we formerly pursued other things. You only have so much passion. What are you going to use it for? Thirdly, uh, Paul begins to explain that when you're following Jesus, you're going to hear all kinds of speculations. You're going to hear all kinds of attacks. You're going to hear all kinds of stuff. And he's saying to Timothy, Timothy, keep your eyes on Jesus. Now, now one of the things that happened for, in Paul's day, you see, Paul had a ministry and it was powerful, and we see how powerful it was, but it was attacked everywhere he went. There were super apostles who were saying, Paul's nothing, his gospel's not true. There were people in the church who wouldn't listen to Paul. And so Paul had to keep his eyes on Jesus and not his critics. And he couldn't get distracted by all the speculations and all these different things. Look, we're living in a day that because of social media, everybody has an opinion. I'm, I, I, you know, I have a Facebook. I like to 
I, I like to look at our stuff on Facebook and everything, but there are so many people who are writing stuff against Bethel. They write stuff against Hillsong. They write stuff against all of these different things. Now, some friends of mine who are really close to me have actually had people set up websites against them. There's one called Discerning Granny who's not discerning. She might be a granny, but she's not discerning. And she writes against all my friends and, and writes all these horrible, awful things that are mischaracterizations, misunderstandings, and are completely intended to destroy people who are doing the work of God. And I'm telling you, you can spend all your time reading all these people's nonsense. And they write prolifically. One guy that I know wrote about soul care, a paper that was 38 pages long. He should get a, a life. He wrote a 38-page paper, 30-some-odd page paper against Rob Reamer and against the book Soul Care. He, he's not helping anybody's soul, and I don't know if he understands he doesn't care. So what happens is people get lost in thinking it's my job to make everybody know what's right. It's my job to stop people. Well, when I first started really doing spiritual warfare, I was trained by a man by the name of Neil Anderson who wrote a book called The Bondage Breaker. And I used to talk with him each week, and I used to travel with him. And people were, in the early days of the Internet, they were setting up websites against them. They were railing against them. They were saying all kinds of untrue, un, not factual things about him in order to destroy him. And I asked him, I said, why don't you answer your critics? Why do you let them say, because I was upset. I was young. <laughs> and I was upset. I'm like, they're saying wrong things. They're saying lies about you. Why don't you, why don't you answer them? He said, it will do no good to answer them. He said, I'm going to outdistance my critics, and I will let God, I will let Jesus defend me. You see, if you stop to answer all your critics, you're not doing your work. And if you're doing your work, you'll always have critics. Oh, that was a good one. Come on, every now and then. I, I say, yeah, there you go. I like that. You understand, if all you're doing is critiquing other people who are actually doing the work, you're not working for God. You're just involving yourself. You see, the Lord's purpose for the truth that he wants you to know is to shape your life, is to change your life, to grow you up, to make you more and more like Jesus Christ. And that leads to this fourth one where he says, you're not to be quarrelsome. You see, if you and I get involved and embroiled in every conflict in our life, it is not other people's fault. It's your fault. If you, if you look and everywhere you're going, people are quarreling with you, people are arguing with you, the constant in that is not them, it's you. And so you have to ask the question, what is it about me that is causing so many quarrels? And usually it's this. We do not speak the truth in love. Now, you might say to me, no, well, I never have any conflicts. Well, then you're probably not speaking the truth. You're just, in a way, if you have truth without love, then the truth by itself is harsh. But if you have nothing but love and no truth, then that love is just sentimental. You see, some people are very sympathetic and sentimental, but will never say the truth. And some people are so truthful without love that they're so harsh. 
And I have to say to you, I believe you can't speak the truth without tears. But you can't just have tears without the truth. And so I'm, I, I believe that the Lord might be having some of you look and say, where are the conflicts in my life? Where am I not speaking up? Or where are the conflicts in my life and I am speaking up too much? And to ask the question, what is it in me that either withdraws or causes conflict? Because the only person in any conversation you have control of is you. Nobody else. So, I got a few more. I'm more play quietly, please. All right. So he says, be kind. Be kind to all. He says, even be patient when wrong. See, I grew up in the South, and in the South, everybody's nice. Okay, everybody's nice, but behind your back, they're they are killing you. They're, they're saying bad things about you. They're all kinds of stuff. So being nice is not what is being called for here. Being nice is a, is a mask that many of us wear so that people won't know what we really think. What I'm really talking about here and what we're really talking about when the Word of God comes in and dwells in you richly, then when you are being attacked either by people who are irritating you or by situations that you have no control over and you, get, you, you would be normally upset and angry, instead what comes out of you is not you but Jesus. You see, when Jesus was on the cross and they're nailing Him to the cross and they're causing all kind of pain and they're rejecting and they're ridiculing Him, what came out of Him was kindness. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And the more you align yourself, even when others are not aligned with you, what will come out of you is that same kindness that came out of Jesus. It stops this whole thing of, I got to tell this person off. I got to hit back. I got to show them they can't treat me like this. I'm going to get even. I'm going to let them know exactly how I feel. I'm going to empty all the guns of my hate on them. I'm going to make them squirm. Instead, you begin to realize that even when it seems hopeless, a, a soft answer can turn away wrath. And then sixth, please, please will you hear me on this? You are not ever to simply understand something for yourself. You are meant to understand it so you can teach it to others. You have not gotten to the place of your own healing in its fullness till you can be involved in the healing of others. See, the Word of God is transformative, but it doesn't stay in us. It's to be taught to others through us. One of the things that I, I started realizing early in doing spiritual warfare counseling or deliverance ministry is that as I was being the facilitator of healing in people's lives, their stories were bringing up old issues in my life. I remember one time I was helping this guy forgive the bullying that he experienced in elementary school, terrible name calling and treatment that he had received. And as he's forgiving these people in his life by name, the Lord immediately drops a name in my head of somebody that hurt me really deeply. And I can, I can tell you the name. His name was Joe Steinwinder. And immediately as I'm listening to this guy, I go, hold on a minute, I got to do some forgiving now. And, and I, this guy been one of those people who just always put me down, always was attacking me. But 
but it was particularly difficult because one of my best friends had died in a car wreck. And, and he and I played sports together. We played baseball and football and all these other things together. And in the year that he died, I made all these different all-star teams in football and baseball. And this guy, Joe Steinwinder, when I made the, the team and when I got the award, came up to me and said, the only reason you got that is because Randy died. And I'm 61 years old and I can still feel that sixth grade power. And it was the first time I ever was afraid of death because I saw my friend die. And so as I was helping this other guy get free of his bullying, the Lord said, now you need to get free. And do and you know what he did? He not only allowed me to forgive and release this guy Joe off of the hook of my revenge, but it also gave me freedom from the fear of death. You see, as you are teaching, as you are healing, you're healing yourself. You know, it may be that some of you are blessed by my teaching, but you know who gets the greatest blessing? Me. Because the more I have to master this, the more I have to recount it, the deeper it goes into me. So Paul's saying to Timothy, don't just do this for yourself. I don't believe a one of you is here this morning simply to keep this to yourself. I believe he wants to use you in a powerful way to share it with others. And then he explains something really interesting in this last thing. He says, there's no other way to deal with people, even when they're wrong, even when they're, what they're saying is wrong and what they're doing is wrong. He says, there's no other way to deal with them but gently. That's the last thing most of us want to do. When people are wrong, we want to kind of get holy hand grenades and destroy them, you know, and have lightning bolts come down from heaven and just wipe them off the face of the earth. And Paul says, no, do you not understand that they've been taken captive by Satan and that they don't even know that they're doing his will? And so you restore them gently, which is really makes sense because the scripture says it's the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. Are you tracking with me in this? So that's a lot of things, but that's how you become a vessel of honor. And then here's one of the great, I think this is John Stott. He said, this double duty of Christians, negative and positive, is the consistent, reiterated teaching of Scripture. Thus, we are to deny ourselves and follow Christ. We are to put off what belongs to our old life and put on what belongs to our new life. We are to put to death our earthly members and to set our minds on heavenly things. We are to crucify the flesh and to walk in the Spirit. It is the ruthless rejection of the one in combination with the relentless pursuit of the other which Scripture enjoins upon us as the secret of holiness. Holiness is wholeness, being what we were intended to be, useful instruments in God's hands. Only so can we hope to be fit for the Master's use. If the promise is to be inherited, he will be a vessel for noble use. The condition must be fulfilled. If anyone purifies himself from what is ignoble, will you stand with me? Will you take up this charge? Will you take up this responsibility? No more lazy workmen, but workmen who need not be ashamed, Paul says but who look at their lives and say, I've got to line up with these seven things. And it, it doesn't matter how young or old you are, you're a vessel. And what's in you is either pure or it's poison. 
It's either holy or it's unwholesome. And it's really a decision you need to make. That's why I ask you, listen again. Maybe go back over the notes. Make this a part of your, you know, your devotions this week. And say, I want to cleanse my life in these areas. But would you do this with me? Would you close your eyes? Would you receive the word that Paul said that the approval that matters is not man's approval, but the approval that man matters is God's. And the only way you receive his approval is by faith. So would you say this with me by faith? Would you say this with me? I receive that through Jesus, I am approved of God because Jesus gave me his righteousness. I am a, a pleasing child of God. This is my identity. This is my wind. This is my motivation. See, if you get that peace, then you're going to want to go to God's word. You're going to want to go to God's language and say, well, what does this mean for me? What is at my disposal? What can I see and do because of this change from the very center of my being? I love this. This truth has transformed me for so many years that I'm already approved. And even when I screw up, it's not by a performance, but it's by His approval. So I steal this now in the name of Jesus. I ask you to walk in it. There's an invitation for you here. Don't miss it. You want to be fit vessels. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.